Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hi, Julia here. Before we dive into this week's episode, we have a very special favor to ask. Next week, we'll be putting on the 100th episode of Policy Forum Pod. What a big one for us. We're very excited for this, but we need your help to make it happen. For episode 100, we need your questions. They can be anything, policy or non-policy related. Wondering how Australia can better engage with the Pacific or keen to find out how we could make Martin stop obsessing about Brexit. Whatever your question, however sensible or otherwise, get it in. We'll pick the best and put them to our special panel. You can find us on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, on Facebook, where we are Policy Forum Pod, or send us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Julia Ahrens. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. And today I've got the great pleasure to be joined by Bob Cotton as my co-host, Bob is a visiting fellow at Crawford School, and he looks back at a really extensive career as an Australian diplomat in the Asia-Pacific region. So, Bob, how have you been? Have you had your honeymoon yet? Hi, Julia. Yes, I have had the honeymoon, and thank you for asking. Uh, that was down at Tarthra, where it's a, a lovely beach and quite deserted part of the world, and we had a lovely time. We're now back in Canberra, getting to work, trying to renovate an old Canberra house. Must which be hard. Going to keep us busy. Must be hard to settle back into normal life after such a lovely honeymoon. Exactly so. Exactly so. <laughs> so most of our listeners will know that each week we go over some of this week's most pressing policy issues. So, Bob, what has caught your, your eye over the past week? What really caught my eye, Julio, was the fact that Australia has just had the hottest march on record which got me thinking again about climate change and the, the things that we need to do to take some serious on, on, on that. Um, I noted an ABC Four Quarters program on Monday night, which had an excellent program on climate change and looking at the different sectors of the economy. On One that struck me was agriculture. That struck me again about the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and how that doesn't seem to be working the way it was meant to be working. Reminded me of the state of the Darling River, the dead fish, uh, the poor farmers, but particularly the role of the states and the government doesn't seem to be working at all well. The role of the particular interest groups and industry groups, 
I'm thinking here of the irrigators, and I think the power and influence that the irrigators and other interest groups come bring to bear on all of this is not really where we want it to be. And I think we do need some more regulations in this field to make sure that the general interest of the Australian public is looked after. Yeah, it's, I think everyone can remember the sad pictures of the Murray Daly Basin and the millions of dead fish and the fishers holding up these fish and presenting them to the public and saying, like, what are we going to do about this? And this is literally the question. What are we going to do about it? Absolutely. And all I can say is I'm hoping uh, with some trepidation that the current election campaign will see a bit more light and not a lot of heat on the respective climate change policies. But hopefully we have a government with a very clear mandate to move on and do this. Yeah, I think that's what we're all hoping for. And talking about upcoming elections, I think we probably won't get around talking about the budget It came out last night and looking at its main points such as tax reliefs and investments in infrastructure and and increasing the instant write-off threshold for small and medium-sized businesses, it seems a bit like little pain, much gain, which really sounds like more of an election campaign item than anything else. What are your thoughts on that, Bob? My thoughts are pretty similar. I think certainly it's a bold bid to try and get some favour back with the electorate. I think the tax cuts obviously have an immediate sense of, oh, that'll be nice. But when you look into it, the tax cuts are are phased in over a long, long period. And really, uh, this government is not going to implement any of them. We have to wait and see actually what they do if they are re-elected or what another government might do. And also, I think some of the projections in those tax cuts, so they're based on government revenues and so on, I think are pretty uh, thinly based and perhaps a bit heroic, as people say. I think that you're making a very good point there about them being pretty heroic. If you want to try and sell that to the public, I guess you you have to sell it somehow. But you can only hope that people stay realistic about the expectations that are going to come out of a budget of a government that's actually governed Australia for the next few years. Correct. Absolutely. Before we get started with the pod, if you're not a member of our Facebook podcast, Gang Yet there is still time for you to join. It's the best way to share your ideas about future episodes of Policy Forum Pod with us and also chat to our listeners and our presenters. Just type in Policy Forum Pod into the Facebook search bar. Today on the pod, we're taking a look at the future of the Australian public service. On 19 March, APS Review Chairman Dave Thody released his interim report on the Australian Public Service Review with dozens of recommendations on how to build a trusted and united bureaucracy. Some of his suggestions included implementing common pay levels and building greater transparency for the hiring and sacking of department secretaries. During this presentation of recommendations, Thody said, I think that probably every recommendation I've put up there has been already canvassed before, so I'm under no illusions that we have a silver bullet here that will make everything different. Some, though, have said that they've heard it all before. But these aren't the only problems facing the public service. We're some concerned about the politicization of the public service in the past, from seemingly random sackings of department heads to costings of opposition party policies. So today on the pod, we want to ask, what are the main challenges facing the APS? Will these recommendations make the APS fit for the future? And how can we ensure that it is not used for political agendas? So tell me more about the great lineup of guests that we have today, Bob. We've got a great lineup of guests to discuss these questions. First will be Professor Helen Sullivan, 
who's the director of the Crawford School of Public Policy and a fellow at the Higher Education Academy and the Institute of Public Administration Australia. We then have Bob McMullen, adjunct professor at the Crawford School. Bob joined Crawford after a distinguished career in the Australian Parliament as one of Australia's preeminent Labor politicians. Bob is also a member of the High Level Advisory Group on Climate Financing. And now introducing Harley Dennett. Harley is editor of The Mandarin, based at the Canberra Press Gallery. The Mandarin is a website that covers public sector news with a focus on senior executives and public administration professionals. It's terrific. That sounds very exciting. I can't wait to hear from our panel about the review of the APS. And before we get started, listeners, don't forget to get in touch with us. We are on Facebook. You can find us under Policy Forum Pod on Twitter, where we are at Apps Policy Forum, or shoot us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. And another request, don't go away. Stick around after the main interview, because we are going to go over some of your comments, questions, and future pod suggestions. But for now, let's have a listen to what our panel have to say. Welcome, Bob. Thank you very much. Welcome, Helen. Hi, good to be here. And Harley. Good to be here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Two weeks ago, APS Review Chair David Thirty published the review panel's preliminary recommendations and reiterated that we need a strong and confident public service with the interests of the Australian people at the heart of all it does as it serves the government and parliament. This is a question for all of you, but perhaps I can start with you, Helen. Do you think his review recommendations will make the APS fit for the future? Um, well, that's a very good question, Julia. And I'm uh, at the moment, I think on the basis of what's been presented, it's uh, it's quite hard to say. Uh, and my reason for saying that is not that I don't think they're uh, good and sound recommendations, uh, but I think as they indicate in the, uh, the paper themselves, uh, the, the test of this will be in the implementation. And as many people uh, who have studied the Australian public service and Australian government for a lot longer than me have noted, this is not the first report that has made some of these recommendations. Uh, and while uh, this report, I think, has made them in a mostly uh, comprehensive and comprehensible way, uh, the challenge of what happens next and how do you make them happen is the, is the big one for me. What do you think about that, Bob? I basically, I of course, agree with Helen about the implementation question, but they're not exactly revolutionary changes. They're quite modest, and but some of them, I think, could be quite important. There'll be an interesting way of checking how we're going after the election, whether it's a re-elected government or a new government, how many machinery of government changes are there? Because I think an important recommendation that they've made and that Martin Parkinson raised recently is we've got to stop fiddling with the structure of the bureaucracy. I, I, the figures said 200 machinery of government changes in the last 20 years. Now that's ridiculous. Probably about two of them actually made any difference to the way the country was run. Harley, what are your points to add on this? Well, if we compare ourselves to the United Kingdom, where they barely have any machinery of government changes between governments um, across whole decades, uh, it uh, it makes Australia look like we haven't made up our minds about what it is that we actually think are priorities. Now that we're um, looking at these issues again, in another review, uh, uh, 
it, it's up to it's up to the APS to define its champions who will implement this. It requires a government that will uh, not just accept the recommendations, but also give it the space to to, to implement some of these, which. No government up until now has really given it the space to implement those uh, the, uh, previous recommendations. So this will take champions on both sides of the political public service um, uh, divide um, and whether or not that's actually achievable is quite up in the air because while we have the suggestions from the APS review, we haven't been given any strategies for how to do that. And there are many, many very wise minds looking at this already, not just the, the six people on the panel. The, and those wise minds have come up with some ideas. It's the, we don't know yet which, which, one, which of those ideas are going, to, are going to get traction with the people who will be in charge after the election and will be in those positions to do something about it. That sounds like there are a lot of question marks and it sounds like that the implementation itself will be one of the biggest challenges of what is going to come out of this review. So um, that leads quite nicely into talking about what are the other challenges that are facing the Australian public service. In this week's Policy Forum Pod Facebook group survey and a quick reminder to our listeners – Get onto that group if you aren't yet. We asked our listeners what they thought the biggest challenge facing the APS is. And for our listeners, it's clearly the politicization of the APS, but also the lack of trust in the bureaucracy and the erosion of policy capabilities by contracting out a lot of the work outside of the public service. And these were really the biggest concerns that our listeners had. Another of our listeners on Twitter, Cheryl Saunders, has added... A comment and she said, let me place a bid for working much better with other jurisdictions within Australia and outside it. Thank you very much for that comment, Cheryl. So, Harley, would you agree with our listeners? What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think it's wonderful that Cheryl wrote in because I read her paper on working with other jurisdictions and I think that it was uh, uh, quite sound. <laughs> Um, which is probably the best public service term for for, for, for describing something like that. Uh, it, uh, it it accurately describes the resentment that has built up in other jurisdictions due to various factors such as the fiscal imbalance that uh, that has resulted in states being unable to afford the uh, the, uh, the the services that it is that that are within their responsibility and. You can also trace it back to a series of betrayals that have happened through COAC. Prime ministers frequently drop last-minute agenda items on the states. The states, their public services are, are equally responsible with delivering uh, the, the outcomes for Australia that, uh, that federal public servants are. And if there isn't a dialogue between them, if there isn't an opportunity to learn, if there isn't an opportunity to uh, uh, exchange that expertise, then we're going to have deeply um, empty, vacuous policy uh, um, uh, uh, development in this country. And that's something that's come up time and time again, the shallow policy understanding. Now, um, Cheryl um, and uh, Ben Rimmer, who was former uh, CEO of the City of Melbourne and as well as a former federal public servant, and Professor Michael uh, Cromelin have, have written a piece where they have talked about how the um, uh, that shallow policy understanding can be attributed to a couple of different factors. Federal public servants nowadays rarely have any state experience, any experience outside of Canberra at all. 
And that's probably probably not so helpful. Ministers, however, they have their jurisdictions. They go and talk to, um, that's their job to go out and speak to Australians. And that's a really important part of our democracy. If we can feed some of that that back (laughs) into the public service, then it's not simply a one-way street. And, and I think that building that relationship with the other jurisdictions, rebuilding that trust is, is going to be pretty key to, to lifting us out of this malaise of, 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 uh, of, of, um, of poor levels of trust as well as capability. Helen, I was going to ask you, do you think that in its current state, the APS will be able to take on some of these challenges? <laughs> That's a really good question. And, I, and it goes to the, the heart of my... Uh, confusion a little bit reading the report. Um, you know, it's very elegantly crafted, but you have at one and the same time a report that is very anxious to say to the readers, public service in Australia is great. Australian public service is third best in the world. Um, some work to do on integrity, capability, tax, social security, and and, and, and a couple of other things, but, um, but, you know, third best in the world. So you think, okay, so that's pretty good. And then the report then talks about all of these things that need to be done. And I mean, I, I, I kind of agree with Bob, you know, some of the changes suggested are quite small, but then the language that's used to talk about how they'll be implemented is the language of transformation. It's it's all that language of, you know, sort of business school consultancy, mm-hmm. um, you know, change making and leadership and all of that stuff, which, you know, leaves people like me rolling their eyes. Um, not because um, leadership isn't important, but it's such an overused word that, you know, you struggle sometimes to understand exactly what is meant by it. And so I, to me, there's some dissonance there between the sense that this is the Australian Public Service has is very well regarded internationally, but the review panel seem to have some serious concerns. Um, and at the same time that what they're proposing seems to be, yes, quite modest, um, but then they feel the need to use the language of transformation. And that long-winded answer to your question, Bob, suggests to me that they feel there will be some serious resistance to even making some of the modest changes. And I think quite right. Who knows what will happen after the election? I think the changes uh, will be more difficult precisely because the Australian Public Service operates in a way that, as all institutions, um, is very resistant to change. Uh, And so even the most modest change, I think, is is going to be um, subject to a, a fair amount of pushback. And I can just hear, you know, all of the people outside saying, oh, you know, you're such a cynic and you don't. It's not that. Um, it really doesn't matter how well structured the secretary's board is. It doesn't matter how um, the organization of the APSC and the various other bits and pieces of the top tier, which the reports to my mind, spends far too long talking about. Those things, yes, they're important, but they're not everything. And the institution has demonstrated, as all institutions can, that it can ride those things out. Um, So I think in order to uh, the, for these things to gain some some traction, um, I think it really has to be um, owned, to use the awful language of the report, um, by the body of the public service, by those people who, you know, remember, only 20% of um, people who work in the APS, according to the report, work in policy development. You know, 70% of them are in implementation and service delivery. Those are the people um, who really need to be won over. And this report, I don't think, was written for them. Um, and I think that's a bit of a problem. 
Bob, turning to you, some of these challenges, such as the rise of artificial intelligence and the politicisation of the APS, have been around for a while. They're not new. Got any ideas why they haven't been sufficiently addressed so far? Well, they're quite different, of course. The the politicisation, I'm not so fussed about that. I'm really surprised people think that's the biggest issue around. I, I, in my experience, the public services are prepared to give you advice whether you want it or not. And uh, <laughs> I think that's terrific. That's, that's to their credit. I regard that as a compliment. But uh, I don't – there are some problems with the appointment process at the top. Uh, I mean, I think Martin Parkinson's terrific, but I think the process by which people get appointed and those the contracts for secretaries is a bit of a problem, but not a major issue. I think the people concerned are generally strong enough and capable enough to cope with it. So – I'm not that fussed about politicisation. I don't think that's a big question. Uh, I think I come back to artificial intelligence in a minute. I think the big the big challenge is the outsourcing model has undermined the institutional memory of the public service, and I actually think the outsourcing model has outlived its usefulness. Uh, it did so, it, it, making things challengeable and contestable did some good things and put some pressure on in a way that was necessary, but uh, I, and I don't think we should do none of it, but I think the the mantra about outsourcing, etc., has outlived its usefulness. Artificial intelligence, big challenge for everybody. Uh, I don't just mean everybody in the government, everybody operating in whatever mode of activity they are, and as soon as you think you've caught up with it, it changes again. So, I, I don't have a view about why the public service is not doing it better, but I'm not sure that anybody's doing it very well. Can I just come in on that, if, if I may? Because I think just going back to, to, to the responses on, on Facebook, which raised this question of both politicisation and, and, um, and outsourcing, um, I think there's also a, a danger here uh, for me that the, the report – and the response to the report gets too bound up in the the processes and the systems and the strategies um, because there's a lot of that 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 that's contained in the report and it's it's putative recommendations. Some of the things I think are really interesting um, are about uh, reasserting, if you like, the the need for proper in-depth expertise, whether that's in policy or whether it's in particular areas of service delivery or whether it's in regulation. And I think the idea that's in the report about restoring professions is a really great one. Um, And one of the things I really like about uh, the report is that it at one and the same time talks about the importance of collaboration, uh, which again is a never-ending theme, but absolutely right, the importance of collaboration within government and and also uh, between governments and with government and others, but also the restoration of boundaries that enable people to collaborate from a position of being better informed, being more capable. And that's something that um, many people who who study uh, government and public administration have just missed altogether, that the the pursuit of collaboration, whether whether it's through outsourcing or, or other means, without a strong uh, body of professionalization, however 
um, defined and, and in however many different ways um, actually means you don't collaborate as well as you could. So I think that's potentially hugely uh, significant, but I think it's, it risks getting lost in some of the, you know, the glossier um, questions around politicization and, you know, how many secretaries should we have and how much power should they have and who should appoint them. And again, those things are important, but the Australian People, as far as I can tell, being almost one of them myself, um, you know, we're interested in what gets delivered and how it gets delivered. Um, and, and those are the things I think that need to focus the minds in terms of implementation. The how it's delivered is actually something that, that requires skill sets that perhaps are not being well developed at the moment. It would be nice if there was a little bit more um, um, uh, uh, emphasis put into co-design and other kinds of tools that are that are available to the public service. But there's it's caught up in a in a debate, an awkward debate between deep expertise versus um, um, a generalist mindset, and 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 the idea that perhaps we need more. Uh, uh, more, more more deep experts, but that comes at the cost of the, the skills that are involved with the softer skills, as they call them, involved with collaboration um, and, um, and those kinds of things. And, and that's something that the public service hasn't solved for itself. The professionalisation, the uh, reintroduction of professionalisation might might genuinely help with, pro with providing multiple streams for people as opposed to something that I know that many of us um, uh, implicitly uh, uh, assist with, which is the problem of everyone has to be a generalist, everyone has to be, because that's the only way that you can rise or have any influence in the public service. That's that's deeply problematic. I'm glad they're talking about it, and 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 uh, <laughs> I think I think I agree with Helen that that's, that some of those strategies are just not quite at that the point yet. Holly, I would like to bring that back to something that you addressed. In the beginning, it's more of a lack of trust. You talked about the lack of trust of jurisdictions into the Australian federal government. But how how is it about the public trust into the in the bureaucracy? Does the APS have a bit of an image problem? And if so, what can we actually do to rebuild it? It's funny that throughout the reports, the many of the reports, there's been this phrase that's come up time and time again that the APS is not broken. And that so, makes you question, why is that phrase popping up all the time? There's, uh, uh, there is a need to not demoralise the APS further, but at the same time, things do need to get, to get fixed. One of those things that I think needs to be fixed uh, is, the, is that accountability side of things. So yes, we've talked a fair bit about uh, integrity and corruption in Australia lately due to various things, bribery scandals and whatnot, and, uh, uh, and, and particularly in procurement. But the transparency and, and, and accountability is quite important when, when you're talking about the, the different models, such as the outsourcing and contracting. Who is accountable in those situations? The public doesn't seem to know because they can't get an answer out of the, the, the body, the organisation that's delivering um, the services that they are relying on. We can go to um, uh, bodies that are like federal estimates and things to get answers out of there, but that's not exactly public accessible. That's not something that, that a member of the public is going to watch and, 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 and feel like that, um, uh, that the, the issues that they are raising are being addressed. There is a definite gap in that, in that entire space. It's not just integrity. It's not just transparency. It's not just accountability. Trust is all of those things. And until there's, I'll, I'll take that back to uh, that they need to work more with the states because they do have a closer relationship with the, with the communities, local government as well. 
until we have a system in place that actually genuinely allows for some feedback. And Martin Parkinson has has talked about, and I believe is in the process of implementing a, a survey of of community um, uh, how the community uh, uh, values and sees and, and rates the the services that they get from government, and that, that that's a great first step. It's just not quite enough, I don't think. And so, say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. That trust element of it, and while we may see some stats that say that we're not that far down in comparison to other countries, <laughs> the truth is, if we're talking about it all the time, then the, then the Australian people aren't satisfied. We can't just simply rely on these on these external uh, assessments to say that, that that we're doing okay. We're not doing okay. We need to do better. Well, I I think there's two related questions around that. One is there's a decline in trust in pub in institutions. Not just governments, not just – I mean much – I'd much rather be st- trying to defend the reputation of the public service than the bank. Uh, so I think the survey material doesn't actually indicate that there is a crisis of trust in the public service. I'm not saying most of the reforms you talked about are not things that actually ought to happen and would make it better. I think they are uh, and should. But we have to keep it in proportion. I mean compared to – uh, politicians, banks, whatever, uh, the public service still stands reasonably high. But uh, I, your point about getting access to information when things are contracted out, even as a backbench member of parliament or an opposition member of parliament, uh, it's very difficult sometimes to find out. You you go to different places and you do have privileged access, but you still can't find out who's doing what and to whom because it, it's been contracted out to somebody who's contacted it out to somebody else. And uh, even the most basic things like what's the working conditions that apply to this person who's answering a phone in a public service office, the answer is you don't know. And they don't know. And it's just totally wrong. Bob, you've talked a bit about already about the politicization of the APS and you gave your thoughts about how you think it should be a main focus but it seems to at least be that the case that the Australian public service has fallen victim to various incidents of politicisation. For example, in 2013, the then Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, was very quick to remove a few department secretaries. It's also something that you addressed mm-hmm. around the hirings and sackings of secretaries. And back then, Crawford's Richard Mulgan commented that the message he was trying to send was aimed at the business community. He wrote that Abbott's private sector allies, looking anxiously for signs of his backsliding into a comfortable centrism, would have expressed 
deep concern. This was an easy win that he could not afford to pass up. And more recently, in February this year, the Labour Party accused the federal government of politicising the APS by employing Treasury to cost policies that were similar to Labour's negative gearing plans. Helen, a question to you. Is Australia's public service particularly vulnerable to politicisation? And if so, why? Um, Well, I think Australia's public services has entered territory that it can't really uh, step back from now. I mean, once you change a public service from being uh, something that is entirely apolitical um, and something that still, um, you know, in the, in the UK is uh, um, is largely without uh, political interference, once you change that, which has happened in Australia, then of course you increase the vulnerability. And um, you know, there's a there's been a a long debate about um, what um, could and should uh, happen as a result of um, of, of the change. Uh, I think I'm with Bob on this. I think it's it's probably something that exercises us um, more uh, perhaps than it should, partly because it's done. It's not going to go away. We need to find a way of managing it. And I think the report does some good things um, in suggesting, you know, more stringent uh, procedures and, and better rules. Um, but I think there are more important things to worry about. And uh, politicization, you know, is one of those things that uh, I think sells newspapers, but I don't think um, it necessarily, provided we have the right safeguards, I don't think it necessarily is something that uh, should be as much of a cause of alarm as as perhaps it's made out to be. Um, but I do think that what the report is suggesting is, is needed and is sensible. Um, but I don't think we should spend too much time on that when there are other things that I think are are perhaps more important. Bob, I'd like to ask what you would think an an apolitical public service would look like. And I was just wondering if you'd like to reflect a bit on the recommendations in the review report about staffing of ministerial officers and the role that they play. Absolutely. I think this is where the interface and the the political pressure comes from and is very difficult to manage. I think everybody who's looked at it recently, including Public Service Review, but I read some interesting remarks by Terry Moran recently in the same direction, saying we need to have an accountability process for ministerial staff, which I absolutely agree with. To my great embarrassment, John Howard coined a phrase called the McMullen Principle, (laughs) um, with which I don't agree, um, but which I did once articulate, which is uh, staff answer to ministers, ministers answer to parliament. And that still is the core principle, but you can't apply it totally. And uh, it's very difficult having a principle named after you that you don't agree with. But uh, nevertheless, that's the way the world is. And uh, it is, uh, but I think there's a number of issues around training of staff, accountability of staff, uh, responsibilities of staff which are in this report and in other recent suggestions, which I think are very, very meritorious. The idea that you'll have some sort of ratio of public services in not ministerial offices, I don't think that makes sense at all. Ministers will decide who they have and they won't be dictated to by any set of rules. But the idea that they should be accountable, that there should be some structure around it, uh, is very important. Uh, there was a Senate committee in 2003 that looked at this uh, and made a series of recommendations. Histories pass it by a little bit, but the core principles they put in place then are still correct. Okay, 
Thanks. Uh, Harley, we've talked a fair bit about politicisation of the APS and what the APS can do about it or otherwise. If we look to the other side, what can we actually do to make the politicians, as it were, this is a big ask, behave a bit better? <laughs> the politicians have, have their own levers. They are, they are, they are, they are accountable to, 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 to the people directly. And, and, there's, and there's not much that, uh, that we need to do to change how, how politicians work. Unless, of course, we, we, we decided to enforce some kind of uh, ministerial code of conduct on top of that that, uh, that, that goes beyond what the public can see. But then we have the problem that, well, if the public can't see it now, what is the likelihood of the public will ever be able to see it to be able to determine if something's gone there? You can't have a public service right now, which, uh, such as the Department of Finance, which is responsible for implementing um, certain safeguards, if you like, on, on, on ministers and on parliamentarians, yet have absolutely no power to enforce those rules, um, not while politicians themselves decide that for, for themselves. What we've seen uh, this week, for instance, with the chastising of Senator um, um, uh, Fraser Anning is a good example that politicians will self-regulate as long as the public are backing them. And we have regular elections to solve that. Um, uh, I would love it if we could have a serious debate at some stage about whether or not Australia should stick with uh, its quasi-Westminster system versus a full-on Washington system. But um, I think if we're struggling with some of the debates right now of just can we get a public service that's capable of, 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 uh, of, of delivering on what, what it promises, that might be a little bit out of our reach right now. Bob or Helen, would you like to add to those comments? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, for me, the the report comes at a time when, um, in a way, it could be seen as 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 highly prescient, but 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 it also um, runs the risk that that um, events are just going to get away from all of us, and I and that's where. Um, I think I, I I probably don't have quite as much confidence as Harley in the um, in the self-regulating uh, capacity of politicians. Um, I and I, I, he's right, absolutely that um, you know they are more um, accountable to the public. Um, and in Australia, given the the electoral system and 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 the frequency of elections, one would think that that would have some kind of positive effect. But the evidence doesn't seem to suggest that it does. And my worry is that more and more people um, are being turned off politics, not just um, as active citizens, um, but um, from going into politics in the first place. And, um, you know, we've seen just this last year, um, you know, resignations of, of very many, um, very senior, very capable women um, on different sides of, of, of politics um, who have stood down for many different reasons. Uh, none of them are reasons that, that uh, men have ever given for standing down, family responsibilities, um, the fact that uh, you might have been the um, the best leader, but you couldn't possibly be elected because you were a woman, those kinds of things. Um, I think th that is of great concern to me. You know, what our parliament looks like, um, what our state 
um, governments look like, what local government looks like. That's really important uh, to how people respond to their politicians. Um, and I think in Australia, we are far too comfortable with this idea that that somehow um, it doesn't matter if they all look the same because they have Australians' interests at heart. And that then gets us to the question of which Australians. And the report does talk a lot about Australians' interests and the Australian public. But of course, it's not a, a homogenous thing. Um, and, uh, you know, what will benefit some people at one point in time is bound to upset other people. And so the the question of diversity, which I raised the last time I was on this podcast and uh, received some interesting criticism for, um, to me remains, whether it's in the politicians or the public service. If your politicians and your public service do not reflect the population that they um, are serving, um, then you're going to have um, a disconnect. And I'm afraid um, in Australia, we have that disconnect compounded by the general malaise that seems to be affecting all um, democracies where uh, people are falling out of love with the system. And that, I think, is incredibly dangerous. I agree with a lot of that. Uh, I think there's one extra or two extra things I want to say. One, the voters are showing more willingness to throw people out even in what they what people always thought was safe seats. I mean, New South Wales was quite dramatic for the National Party, but I think uh, whether Tony Abbott wins or loses, he's certainly got to run in a seat that everybody thought was safe for him. And uh, I used to say in my own constituency, I was never in under any danger from a Liberal beating me, but if, there was a, but if I did something that people didn't like and a strong independent ran, I'd be in trouble. Uh, and... Uh, Hopefully, neither. fortunately, neither of those things happened or at least were seen to happen. Um, but the other thing I want to say is, look, the, there's been some discussion about training, et cetera, for advisors, but also I think we need to put in place some process for training for future ministers. Mm. I mean, the, we still operate on the system as if it's 19th century England and a, and a chap walks in off the street and uh, is the minister and uh, goes off to the club at time, from time to time. It, it's as if... There's no skill set required. There's no – and some ministers fail even though they had the potential to be very good because before they got their feet under the desk, they'd made some mistake. And there was an example recently with a, a newly appointed cabinet minister in this government who I think is by repute is quite a competent person, but she had made two gaffes within 24 hours. Mm. Now – there's no way you can't give people training after they're appointed ministers because you're just running from day one. But we need to focus on the people who are the next generation of ministers and provide them with some training. Martin Parkinson raised the possibility that the public service should do that. I think public servants should be involved, but it's not a task I think the public service can do. But I think government needs to focus on funding that. The day of the amateur is long gone. So you've all mentioned so many great ideas already, but as we are quite rapidly having to wrap up the podcast now, I'd like to ask you if you had one piece, just one piece of advice to give to the APS review panel on how to better address the challenges that are facing the public servants, what would it be perhaps starting with you, Helen? Um, for me, I think the 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 biggest gap in the report as it stands um, is the uh, the work around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. There's a section at the at the end of the report which says a lot of good things, um, but I think uh, there 
is a, a, so much evidence um, of what has not worked um, that um, the review team has a an, an obligation, it seems to me, to to focus more on how the public service can better um, respond to and serve the needs of that population. What about you, Bob? I, I come back to probably what I said right at the beginning. I think in the in the, this part of the 21st century, the outsourcing model has outlived its usefulness and they should be questioning it and challenging it and putting it to bed. Harley? For me, it's the talent pool. It's an awkward topic in the APS. No one wants to say that the people who are there now aren't, aren't good for it. But uh, if you compare it to the other jurisdictions, particularly the states and territories, uh, where they do have people in very senior roles who, ha who, who have uh, quite deep personal experience, um, uh, who have lived experience, that's quite lacking in the federal public service. I want the APS review to tackle that. Thank you, everyone, so much for sharing your views and thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, again. Listeners, also, please stick with us because in just a few seconds, we'll be back to have a look at your comments and suggestions for the podcast. But for now, let's hear from our friends at The Familiar Strange about why you definitely need to subscribe to their pod if you haven't done so already. Hi, I'm Julia Brown. I'm Ian Pollock. And I'm Simon Theobald. Some of your familiar strangers from the Familiar Strange podcast. The Familiar Strange is a podcast about doing anthropology. That is, about listening, looking, trying out, and being with. In pursuit of uncommon knowledge about humans and culture. The show alternates between in-depth conversations with experts and senior academics about the ways they think, write, do research, and navigate the academic world. And panel discussions, where emerging anthropologists, like ourselves, take a look at our worlds using what we've learned as students of anthropology. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And find our blog at thefamiliarstrange.com. Is that it? That's it. Excellent. Check us out and keep talking strange. Thank you so much, Helen, Harley, and Bob. So listeners, what do you think of this discussion? Please keep sending us your feedback, questions, and comments. And also, if you're keen to build your career in the public service, you might want to take a look at Crawford's degree programs from environmental management and development to policy communication. We really offer a wide range of postgraduate degrees that can help you take your career to the next level. You can check them out on our webpage. That is crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. And if doing a whole degree sounds really like a bit much, you could also check out our wide range of short courses. Just go to crawford.anu.edu.au slash executive education and have a look at what might take your fancy. Each week, we get the great chance, and I always love this part, where we get to look at your comments and suggestions for the podcast. And I'd like to start with actually a comment on last week's podcast, Countering Violent Extremism with Jacinta Carroll, Anusha Mushtaq, Matthew O'Neill and Caroline Fisher. In this episode, our panelists discuss countering violent extremism policies and whether policymakers have a bit of a blind spot when it comes to right-wing extremism. The panel also discuss how the mainstream media reports deadly attacks and whether the social media giants are pulling their weight in preventing violent content spreading. 
We had a comment by at Digby House on Twitter. They wrote, thanks for answering my question, Jacinta Carroll. It's very true the, the law is agnostic to groups and only looks at threat. I think there's a severe form of communal violence which has emerged, which doesn't fit nicely into our mold of Islamist terrorism, Las Vegas slash Christchurch. And there's also been a follow-up comment by at Faint Glow. They wrote, the law is not only a framework, it is also a tool that is wielded according to the inclination of those authorized to do so. There are lots of competing interests and the authorities need to sound intel to guide decision-making, including right-wing versus Islamist threats. What do you think about that, Bob? Well, I think I have to agree with Digby Howis and also Faint Glow on their comments. I think the law is agnostic. Yes, it's important that we cover and deal with communal violence threats across the whole spectrum of our community. I know from my own experience in dealing with state and federal police and also some of the national security public servants that it's a hard task. You've got to get really engaged with the communities and to follow what is going on and to be engaged with them to get a sense of where these threats might come from. And just simply to emphasize that it's a lot of hard work, a lot of resources are needed. I'm told that if you need to, as it were, tail somebody for 24-7, it's a lot of people on three shifts and a lot of money required. But you've got to do it if you're going to get a chance of trying to nip these sort of threats and actual acts of violence in the bud. And I definitely agree with you there that we need to look at the whole spectrum of communal violence and Digby addressed this by saying, yes, we need to we need to look at what has emerged. And I feel like this has not just been a recent problem, but it has been a problem that has been around for a very long time. For example, in Germany, we're still in the process of prosecuting one of um, the perpetrators of a right-wing terrorist cell that was active in the early 2000s and late 90s. So it's a very... Um, it's a very recent problem. We're still dealing with it and it's good to keep it on our radars and be very much aware of it and maybe also talk about it a bit more openly and a bit more directly, I think, particularly the part of right-wing terrorism. A big thank you to everyone who's commented and also please keep sending those fantastic comments in. You can reach us at Apps Policy Forum at Policy Forum Pod on Facebook or just drop us a line, podcast at policyforum.net. And now we're getting on to another very interesting part of this podcast, which is your suggestions for future podcasts. We're really keen to get your thoughts on what topics you'd like to see covered on future podcast episodes. So jump into our Facebook group, do it right now, and let us know what you'd like to see covered, because that's just what Paul, Tasman, and Sean have done. Paul wrote, hello, Paul, by the way. Hi, Paul. I have a suggestion to the podcast team. There's a need to discuss the merits and demerits of the Royal Commissions of late and whether the intended Royal Commission is targeting violence on disabled persons. What is the role of public participation on this? What can the government improve in order to implement the recommendations? And what are the lessons learned from past Royal Commissions? This and much more can enable us to understand the different approaches to ensure public policies are well-designed, planned and implemented. And we've got another one here by Tasman. Hi, Tasman. Hi, Tasman. Good to have you on board. He writes... National security policy, foreign policy, international development policy, public administration issues, which we've addressed today, Pacific Islands, PNG. 
also a great list of things and we will talk about in just a second. And last but not least, we have Sean. Hello, Sean. Hi there, Sean. More climate change from a scientific, social and economic perspective and perhaps do a series of podcasts where each episode looks in depth at Australia's relationship with a political with a particular country in the region and what their policy landscape looks like. It's a lot to unpick there. Bob, what do you think about those? Well, look, uh, thank you. I think they're all great suggestions. Coming back to Paul and the Royal Commissions, that's a huge field of work there, which is really very stimulating. Questions come immediately to mind. Would we look at the ones currently underway, such as the one he's mentioned on uh, the disabled persons and whether there's violence going on there? My understanding is that uh, people are always invited to participate and give their evidence and appear before royal commissions. But uh, we've seen with the most recent one on the banking sector, finance and superannuation, the amount of people wanting to appear and the amount of time the Royal Commission had to consider it had to be quite severely limited. So people were frustrated there. Uh, Also, I think Royal Commissions uh, open up a deeper purpose and concern, which is we seem to have a lot of them these days. And I think it points to the mismatch or conflicted government or maybe government problems are getting that very much more complicated. So I think uh, we'd have to narrow it down to one or two and I'd really try and figure out whether, should we concentrate on one that's currently underway. Another one would be the Royal Commission to Aged Care. So those would be the two I think we would cut on. Final point for you on that one, uh, Paul, is that, um, of course, governments have to take the recommendations of the Royal Commission and then see what, which of those they can implement and how should they do that. Coming now to Tasman. Wow, thank you, Tasman. This is great. National security policy, foreign policy, international development policy, great stuff. And also, Sean, uh, more climate change from a scientific, social, and economic perspective. I think that's a great idea. I think we could look at that, for example, with both New Zealand and then again with Indonesia. That would be quite fascinating. We have a lot in common with New Zealand. We have a lot of intergovernmental arrangements. New Zealand government sits as a member of the various ministerial Australian government committees, so there's a lot of interaction there. New Zealand is going about climate change policy in a different way from us. And then Indonesia is both a uh, another country where we could just confine this to climate change and just see what Indonesia is doing, what we're doing. Because in all of this, there will be a future potential for us in Indonesia as we move into renewable energy and particularly use of hydrogen. I definitely agree with you on that, Bob. And I think from from what Sean said, um, to also include a social view of this, because this is, seems to be such a hot topic, quite literally, in uh public discussion and we see all across Europe and also Australia that people are that young people taking their Fridays often trying to protest for climate change and I guess this is the movement that Greta Thunberg has really uh, kicked off so it's something that is really interesting and we just should... to insert there I actually attended that demonstration here in Canberra Centre because I had a free day and I must say I was very impressed by their knowledge and their acuity and their in, and their intelligence and the way they put forward what they thought would be a sensible future, not only for us but particularly for them. It gives us hope for the future really it looking did. at that. So thanks to Paul, Tasman and Sean for letting us know your suggestions through our Facebook podcast group. It is really you listeners who make sure that our well of ideas never runs dry. It's exciting to see that there are now more than 100 people on the podcast group and I really want to seize the moment to welcome this week's new members that helped us crack the 100. So a big hello to Crizel DeSee, Sean Watt, 
Claire Brereton, Dorji Chering, Karina Mosniagu, Tasman Bain, Elizabeth Booty, Kayla Costa, Jessica Kood, Avery Poole, and Joe Fielding. So before we wrap up, I have another favor to ask of you. If you like Policy Forum Pod, could you please leave us a quick review on iTunes? It only takes 30 seconds. Just find that fifth star. It'll be a big help to us in getting the word out about this podcast. And also, don't forget to get your questions in for the big 100th episode of Policy Forum Pod next week. We really need your ideas and questions for this one. We'll be back next week with another episode of Policy Forum Pod. But until then, from me, Yulia, cheerio. And me, Bob. Thanks again. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.